Hello, I'm Alec Abdekal, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. There are a few changes coming up to this podcast in the future. I have just finished up my summer class, and I did particularly well. This frees up a lot of time for me to focus on podcasting. However, I am looking at this in the long run, and I don't want to binge a bunch of episodes in a short amount of time. Instead, my plan is to switch my podcast from August until next April into a monthly series. I figure that you folks out there would rather like to have a more regular series than one where you have to wait for exclusively in the summer. Therefore, this episode will be the only episode for this month. So, you guys got that? In short, this will be a a monthly series for a little while. I also restarted a project that failed for the first time, but this time it is a much more structured than my first attempt. I am bringing back my Patreon account. As you can see, all of my episodes have a link to it in the show notes. But this time, I want to provide you a service. If you donate $3 a month, you will be able to listen to all of my episodes ad-free. There are other perks if you donate more, but be sure to check out the link in the show notes. I also want to thank the listener Manufoto from Canada for this kind review, which reminds me to be sure to give me honest feedback and reviews from wherever you listen. It means a lot to hear from you folks, and I want to know what you like and dislike about this podcast. So that's what's going on with my podcast as of now. Now, let's jump into the recap of the last episode. Last time we discussed the perspective of Maria Theresa during the First Silesian War. We discussed her coronation to become the Queen of Hungary and the physically demanding ceremony. We also discussed the important Peace of Breslau and the Treaty of Berlin, which ended the First Silesian War. At the tail end of the episode, you heard about the impact of her reign within the context of the 1740s. With a whole bunch of political and military maneuvering, Frederick was finally out of the war. But in times of peace, it is important that leaders learn from the mistakes that took place during the war. If you look at the campaigning that Frederick undertook, you can see many mistakes that he made. In my opinion, His foremost mistake was not to allow Prince Leopold von Anhalt-Dessau to join his invasion of Silesia. This guy was the most famous Prussian general and army reformer of the time, and Frederick chose not to use his military expertise. The Battle of Molwitz would likely have been far different if the old Dessauer was on the field that day. The sheer amount of stubborn pride Frederick had is fairly remarkable. However, he was also able to amend his mistakes by changing aspects of his military he deemed underwhelming. If you look at both of the major battles that took place in the First Silesian War at Molwitz and Chotuzitz, then you will see one major parallel. The Prussian cavalry did not perform too well. Frederick claimed, quote, My father left me a bad cavalry in which there was hardly an officer who knew his profession. The troopers feared their horses and scarcely ever rode, knowing only how to go through their exercises on foot, like the infantry. The cavalry was too heavy, with its big men and big horses, 
and the effects in our first war were so bad that I saw that I had to remake the entire core. If you go back to my episode about the Battle of Molwitz, you'll remember that it was the Austrian cavalry that swept the Prussian cavalry off the field and caused Frederick to flee. It was the infantry at both Molwitz and Chotuzitz that was able to defeat the Austrians. However, the cavalry, the exploding force of the army, did not accomplish much during the First Silesian War. That is the main reason why, after making peace with the Austrians, Frederick made sure that his cavalry would undertake massive reforms. But first, we must discuss a little bit of the class structure in Prussia during the time of Frederick the Great. One of the first things people must understand is that Prussia was far from an egalitarian society. While it did make steps under Frederick Wilhelm's reign to restrict the power of the nobles, the society was still one in which a king and aristocracy held basically all of the political power. Therefore, one must look at where the power flows in Prussia. It starts with the king, who has complete military and political control to delegate to the rest of society. He directly owned one-fourth of the land in Prussia as personal domains. This means that as the largest landowner in a time where land meant power, the king in Prussia had the largest say. Then to the civil servants and administration. Essentially, these are the people who make the day-to-day -day ruling of Prussia possible. Then you have the Junkers. These were the nobility that, because of anti-nobility reforms of the great elector and King Frederick Wilhelm, had little political power. The Junkers were deeply tied to the military, especially the Junkers from Pomerania. With Frederick Wilhelm obsessed with the military and its reform, he made sure that every noble would serve in his army. Therefore, the army became prestigious in Prussia with high-quality officers and a way for the nobility to climb socially. This then leads us to the peasantry. See, the peasants back then had no concept of a nation of Prussia. Therefore, when they were forced to join the military, many would desert due to the fact that they could not rally around national pride. Living conditions were also fairly poor in the army, and discipline was very harsh. With all that in mind, let us go to the structure of the cavalry. The cavalry, which are soldiers that fight on horseback, consisted of people who were higher class than the infantry. These men were expected to be the most loyal soldiers in the army, and therefore had some special privileges. The cavalry was paid more and was considered more glamorous compared to the infantry. While the infantry did the dirty work, the cavalry would have the more independent jobs of the army. Cavalrymen would undertake these jobs in different ways. There are three main types of cavalry, the light cavalry, or the hussars, the medium cavalry, called the dragoons, and the heavy cavalry, known as the cuirassiers. We'll start with an account of the hussars. Hussars originated from the Hungarian plains. They were the Hungarian answer to the Ottoman raids into their lands. There is a quote from a famous French minister that describes the Hungarian, quote, natural inclination to be a hussar. The French minister said, quote, the Hungarian has an inborn spark and a natural inclination towards stratagems. He lives in a country which abounds in horses. He learns to be a horseman in his childhood, 
and having nothing better to do in that half-savage land, he teaches his horses all kinds of tricks, and acquires a peculiar mastery of that kind of equitation. His land is thinly populated, and the dwellings are consequently sparse, which means that when he is out riding, he must keep a sense of direction in order to be able to retrace his path. With his kind of upbringing, the Hungarian becomes a perfect light cavalryman without further training. With the expertise of the Hungarians on display due to the Habsburgs constantly being at war in the 1700s, the Prussians wished to imitate this. The first 30 Prussian hussars were raised in 1721. This was during the reign of Frederick's father. King Frederick Wilhelm, however, believed that infantry should be the elite of his army, and his mind seemed made up against the experimentation of the hussars. Then, in 1729, Frederick Wilhelm visited his daughter, Frederick's older sister, Wilhelmina, the Margrave of Bayreuth. On this visit, he was impressed by the local hussars of Bayreuth. By 1737, there would be six squadrons of hussars in an independent corps. Frederick Wilhelm admitted, however, that, quote, a German lad does not make such a good hussar as a Hungarian or a Pole. But what exactly was the role of the hussars on the battlefield? The men riding these horses would be small and nimble riders with the old idea that speed is key. They would scout the land for enemy soldiers, protect the flanks of the marching columns, and protect the supply train from enemy harassment. These men had to be extra loyal because they had the most independent duties. If men were going to desert, the hussars could have deserted the easiest. The hussars could attack on the battlefield, however, that task was mainly delegated to the heavy and medium cavalry. The hussars had a flamboyant and colorful uniforms. There were black, white, red, green, and blue hussars. They wore a dolman jacket with a color that was specific to the regiment. A fur-lined pelisse is what covered the upper section of the hussar and had gold braiding on the front. To cover their midsection, the hussars wore leather pants, and they wore leather boots that were tall and connected to trousers of close-fitting cloth. On their heads, they wore caps that looked like inverted flower pots. During the reign of Frederick the Great, there was a development of some hussars wearing a skull and crossbones on their caps. This symbolized that they would take no prisoners. The Totenkopf hussars, as they would be known, began as the 5th Hussars Regiment and became infamous on the battlefield. A famous German general from World War I, August von Mackensen, would be famous for constantly wearing the cap of the Totenkopf Hussars. There was another famous Hussar Regiment in Frederick the Great's army, and that was the Bosniakin. But I believe that the story of that regiment deserves its own episode. Truly a crazy story. The hussars were equipped with a small, smooth-bore musket called a carbine and a saber, or a curved sword. There were two men that rose above the rest in the hussars during the reign of Frederick the Great. Hans Joachim von Zieten, also known as the Hussar King, and Friedrich Wilhelm von Seidlitz, the foremost cavalryman of his time. Two extremely interesting characters that deserve much more press than they are given. I mean, heck, there should be a book about Frederick's generals. 
They all have extremely interesting personalities and remind me of Napoleon's marshals. I mean, why is there no good biography in English about Field Marshal von Schweren? Anyway, if you have any author friends that know German and English, tell them about that concept. There's a book called Napoleon and His Marshals. Why not call it Frederick the Great and His Marshals? Either way, I'd pay for it. Anyway, what were we talking about? Right, the Hussars. The Hussar Regiment consisted of 10 squadrons and had a paper strength of 1,100 men. The Hussars performed particularly badly in the First Silesian War. I just have to read a quote written in Christopher Duffy's book on the army of Frederick the Great. He writes, quote, The Prussian Hussars made a singularly unimpressive debut in the First Silesian War. They saw the Austrian Hussars run rings around them in the hill country, and the white Hussars, the Hussars wearing white uniforms, were reduced to impotent fury when the enemy took the habit of bleeding bah, bah, at the sight of their furry white pelisses. That right there is iconic. Could you imagine the sheer embarrassment and rage the white hussars must have felt when they were compared to sheep by the Austrians? That whole situation just brings a smile to my face, and I hope it does to you too. Now that we have sufficiently discussed the Hussars, let's quickly discuss the Medium Cavalry, also known as the Dragoons. The Dragoons came from the Thirty Years' War with the idea that these men should have the firepower of the infantry and the speed of the cavalry. Frederick the Great received ten regiments of Dragoons when he became king in 1740. The Dragoons wore a sky-blue coat that looked like that of an infantryman's and had a three-cornered hat. They wore a yellow bandolier with a black cartridge pouch. He was equipped with a carbine with a bayonet and a straight sword that was double-edged. This leaves us with the heavy cavalry, also known as the cuirassiers. The name cuirassier comes from the French word cuirass, which is a breastplate armor that those particularly horsemen wore. These men were quite the opposite of the Hussars in stature, and were large, lumbering men that had huge horses. Frederick the Great inherited 13 cuirassier regiments, which consisted of 63 squadrons. A regiment included 37 officers, 70 non-commissioned officers, or NCOs, 10 medical orderlies, 5 farriers, these were the people who made horseshoes, 20 trumpeters and drummers, and the regimental staff. The uniforms of the cuirassiers from top to bottom included a black three-cornered hat, a white shirt, a waistcoat that was covered by a strawberry-colored short waistcoat, breeches made of soft leather, and white stockings that were two inches taller than the black riding boots they wore. The cuirassier had an iron breastplate that was particularly heavy. It was fastened by yellow leather straps. The majority of the cuirassiers had their iron breastplates painted black, with the exception of the Garde du Corps, which had bare polished metal. The men of the cuirassiers were equipped with a carbine, two pistols, and a sword that hung on their left side. The sword was between 40 and 42 inches long, double-edged, and straight. Now on to the tactics the cavalry used. The basic tactical unit of the Prussian cavalry, and nearly all cavalry at the time, was the squadron. Each squadron consisted of 
four platoons of about 40 men each. An individual cavalryman must be trained to fight on horseback, which was more costly than training that of an infantryman. The man must know how to ride. The horse must be used to battlefield conditions. The horseman must learn to fight and charge his unit, and they must be extremely loyal to the king. Frederick the Great's father, Frederick Wilhelm, had trained the cavalry to charge at a slow trot rather than at a full gallop. This showed its flaws at the Battle of Molwitz when the Prussians stood motionless as the Austrians took the initiative. Instead, Frederick believed in the so-called coordinated shock effect. This meant that the cavalry should use their swords to thrust into the enemy and speed must be increased. This would send a shock into the enemy and put more weight behind the charge. Before the Battle of Chotuzitz, the cavalry was expected to charge at a gallop 30 paces away. After that battle, Frederick increased it to 100 paces away. The formation should still be tight and disciplined, but speed must increase. To finish this month's episode, we will discuss what it took to sustain the Prussian cavalry. After all, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Amateurs talk tactics while professionals discuss logistics. So, while the Prussian infantry was packed in garrison towns, the cavalry was dispersed throughout Prussia's lands. A full third of the entire Prussian cavalry was stationed in the province of Silesia after the First Silesian War, while a quarter was stationed throughout East Prussia. However, other provinces in the Hohenzollern domains had a smaller amount of cavalry in their lands. I guess I shouldn't be too surprised Silesia had a third of the Prussian cavalry. The area was so vital to the Prussian state strategically, and Frederick always believed that the Austrians would be back once they were done with the French. Cavalry, of course, means horses, and horses means a bunch of supplies that needs to be set aside for fodder. At the height of the Prussian cavalry during Frederick the Great's reign, an individual horse was fed a solid 8 pounds of oats, 11 pounds of hay, and 14 to 15 pounds of chopped straw a day. With roughly 140 to 190 combat horses needed for each squadron, that meant, on the low end of estimates, the squadron needed a little over two and a quarter tons of fodder daily. However, on the high end of estimates, it takes a little over three tons of fodder per day for a squadron of 190 horses. This is a mind-boggling statistic if you keep in mind that this was a time before the Industrial Revolution and it was an agricultural-based society. However, I believe I shall have to leave you here. After discussing the cavalry structure and reforms directly after the First Silesian War, we shall see if this reform will make a difference if Frederick goes back to the battlefield. Thank you all for listening to this month's episode, and to conclude, I believe I shall tell you all the key word of the Prussian charge. Vorwärts! Forwards.